Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring tales to terrify, Crime City Central, protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome. Hello and welcome to show 389. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Well, the build-up is here. We've been kind of putting out our little wings there and telling little hints and, you know, little snippets about what's coming. We have a story today by George R.R. Martin. It's wrote in collaboration with Howard Waldrop and it is called The Men of Greywater Station. And this is the first time anywhere online that it's been broadcast. So as you can imagine, Starship Sofa is very proud to run this story. I want to say a big thank you to Jeremy Sals, who's our assistant editor at Starship Sofa, who, you know, we wouldn't have gotten this story if it wasn't Jeremy persistently persistently there emailing away there. So a big thank you to Jeremy to try and, you know, and getting this kind of sorted. But before the story, I'd just like to say this show is sponsored by Octagon Technology. Octagon Technology is now able to supply hosted exchange service for solicitors and legal firms in the UK who need to use the criminal justice secure email. So just before we get into the story, you know, and I'll kind of read the bios and that, I just want to say I've also done, if you want to go over to my YouTube channel, Starship Sofa's HQ, where I go a little bit kind of in the background of the story and I give a couple of my thoughts on on the actual story as well. So there'll be a link, actually I'll put the video in there as well when it comes up online. So you can kind of see what I feel, or you can you know, hear what I feel about this story and just how it got together, how it was made and little just kind of snippets like that. If you don't know George R.R. Martin, well, you're going to find out there now. I'll give you a bio on the the gentleman. Hugo, a Nebula and World Fantasy Award winner, George R.R. Martin. New York Times bestselling author of the landmark Song of Ice and Fire fantasy series has been called the American Tolkien. Born in New Jersey, 
George R. Martin made his first sale in 1971 and soon established himself as one of the most popular science fiction writers of the 70s. He quickly became a mainstay for the Ben Bova analogue with stories such as With Morning Comes Misfall and Seven Times Never Kill a Man, The Second Kind of Loneliness, The Storm of Windhaven, in collaboration with Liesl Turtle and later expanded by them into the novel Windhaven. Although he's also sold two Amazing, Fantastic, Galaxy, Orbit and other markets. One of his analogue stories, the striking novella A Song for Liar, won him his first Hugo Award in 1974. By the end of the 70s, he's reached the height of his influence as a science fiction writer and was producing his best work in that category with such stories as his famous Sand Kings, which won him both the Nebula and the Hugo in 1980. He'd later win another Nebula in 1985 for his story Portraits of His Children. The Way of the Cross and the Dragon, which won a Hugo Award in the same year, making George R. Martin the first author ever to receive two Hugo Awards for fiction in the same year. By now, he'd mostly moved away from analogue, although he would have a long sequence of stories about the droll interstellar adventures of Javier Turf, later collected in Turf Voyaging, running through the 80s in Stanley Schmidt's analogue, as well as a few strong individual pieces such as the novella Night Flyers, most of his major work of the late 70s and early 80s, though, would appear in Omi. The late 70s and 80s also saw a publication of his memorable novel, Dying of the Light, his only solo science fiction novel. By the beginning of the 80s, he'd moved away from science fiction and into the horror genre, publishing the big horror novel, Fever Dream, and winning the Bram Stoker Award for his horror story, The Pear-Shaped Man, and the World Fantasy Award for his werewolf novella, The Skin Trade. By the end of that decade, though, the crash of the horror market and the commercial failure of his ambitious horror novel, The Armageddon Rag, had driven him out of the print world and into a successful career in television, where for more than a decade he worked as story editor or producer on such shows as The New Twilight Zone and Beauty and the Beast. After years away, Martin made a triumphant return to the print world in 1996 with the publication of the immensely successful fantasy novel A Game of Thrones. The start of his Song of Ice and Fire sequence. A freestanding novella taken from that work, Blood of the Dragon, won Martin another Hugo Award in 1997. Further books in the Song of Ice and Fire series, A Clash of Kings, A Storm of Swords, A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons have made it the most popular, acclaimed and best-selling series of all modern fantasy. Recently, the books have made it into a HBO TV series, Game of Thrones, which has become one of the most popular and acclaimed shows on television and has made Martin a recognisable figure well outside of the usual genre boundaries, even inspiring satirical versions of him on Saturday Night Live. Martin's most recent books are the latest book in the Ice and Fire series, A Dance with Dragons. A massive retrospective collection spanning the entire spectrum of his career, George R. Martin, a retrospective. A novella collection, Star Lady and Fast Friend, a novel written in collaboration with Gardner Doswas and Daniel Abraham, Hunter's Run. And as editor, several anthologies edited in collaboration with Gardner Doswas, including Warriors, Songs of the Dying Earth, Songs of Love and Death, and Down These Strange Streets and several new volumes in his long-running Wild Cards anthology series, including Suicide Kings and Fort Freak. 
In 2012, Martin was given a Life Achievement Award by the World Fantasy Convention. Like I say, this story is wrote in collaboration with Howard Waldrop. Waldrop's stories combine elements such as alternate history, American popular culture, the American South, old movies and character actors, classical mythology and rock and roll music. His style is sometimes obscure or elliptic. Night of the Kutas is a pastiche of H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds, told from the perspective of a small-town Texas sheriff, a homage to Slim Perkins, who finds an off-course Martian cylinder crashing down near his hometown. Waldrop's work is frequently out of print, though still available for sale online. Several of his books have been reprinted in omnibus editions. And this story is narrated by the one, the only, Mr. Nick Cam. Here is his professional bio. Nick is an actor, audiobook narrator and voiceoverer. He recently did a few scenes on the telly with Derek Jacobi, which made him tingle. He's just finished shooting his first feature film, Slapper and Me, which mostly involved him sitting in a sleazy pub for 12 hours a day, smoking herbal cigarettes and drinking tepid, non-alcoholic ale and pretending to be in the 70s. He thinks it should be out in the autumn, but they're not telling him. Probably because they don't want him turning up at the premiere in his cheap suit. Audiobook-wise, Nick is currently four books into the narrating the mystery thriller Eddie Malone series, written by Richard Pittman and Joe McNally. Set in the skullduggery world of horse racing, reluctant part-time detective Eddie gets involved in various capers and generally solves stuff. It is the first time in many a year that Nick has read and enjoyed a set of novels where spaceships refuse to appear. Notwithstanding, Nick has made a polite suggestion to the authors that shiny, future-type stuff might feature in the next series. And this has fallen on deaf ears. If you want Nick to narrate a book for you, he can be found on Twitter at nickcam.1 and I'll put a link on as well if you want him for any acting. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Men of Greywater Station by George R. R. Martin with Harold Waldrop. The men of Greywater Station watched the shooting star descend and knew it for an omen. They watched it in silence from the laser turret to atop the central tower. The streak grew bright in the northeast sky, divided the night through the thin haze of the spore dust. It went through the zenith, sank, fell below the western horizon. Sheridan, the bullet-headed zoologist, was the first to speak. There they went, he said unnecessarily. Del Vecchio shook his head. There they are, he said, turning towards the others. There were only five there of the seven who were left. Sandepe and Mitterts were still outside collecting samples. They'll make it, Del Vecchio said firmly. Took too long crossing the sky to burn up like a meteor. I hope we got a triangulation on them with the radar. They came in slow enough to maybe make it through the crash. Rain, the youngest of the men at Greywater, looked up from the radar console and nodded. I got them all right, though it's a wonder they slowed enough before hitting the atmosphere. From the little that got through jamming, they must have been hit pretty hard out there. If they live, it puts us in a difficult position, said Del Vecchio. I'm not quite sure what comes next. I am, said Sheridan. We get ready to fight. 
If anybody lives through the landing, we've got to get ready to take them on. They'll be crawling with fungus before they get here. And you know they'll come. We'll have to kill them. Galvecchio eyed Sheridan with new distaste. The zoologist was always very vocal with his ideas. That didn't make it any easier for Delvecchio, who had to end the arguments that Sheridan's ideas usually started. Any other suggestions? he asked, looking to the others. Rain looked hopeful. We might try rescuing them before the fungus takes over. He gestured towards the window and the swampy, fungus-clotted landscape beyond. We could maybe take one of the flyers to them, shuttle them back to the station, put them in the sterilization ward. Then his words trailed off, and he ran a hand nervously through his thick black hair. No, there'd be too many of them. We'd have to make so many trips, and the swamp bats... I don't know. The vaccine, suggested Granovitz, the wiry XT psychologist. Bring them some vaccine in a flyer. Then they might be able to walk it. The vaccine doesn't work right, Sheridan said. People build up an immunity. The protection wears off. Besides, who's going to take it to them? You? Remember the last time we took a flyer out? The damned swamp bats knocked it to bits. We lost Blatt and Ryerson. The fungus has kept us out of the air for nearly eight months now, so what makes you think it's all of a sudden going to give us a free pass to fly away into the sunset? We've got to try, Rain said hotly. From his tone, Delvecchio could see there was going to be a hell of an argument. Put Sheridan on one side of a fight and immediately Rain was on the other. Those men are out there, you know, Rain continued. I think Ike's right. We can get them some vaccine. At least there's a chance. We can fight the swamp bats. But those poor bastards out there don't have a chance against the fungus. They don't have a chance whatever we do, Sheridan said. It's us we should worry about. They're finished. By now the fungus knows they're there. It's probably already attacking them. If any survived. That seems to be the problem, said Delvecchio quickly before Rain could jump in again. We have to assume that the fungus won't miss a chance to take them over, and that it will send them against us. Right, said Sheridan, shaking his head vigorously. And don't forget, these aren't ordinary people we're dealing with. That was a troop transport up there. The survivors will be armed to the teeth. What do we have besides the turret laser? Hunting rifles and specimen guns. And knives. Against screechers and seventy-five Mike Mikes and God knows what else? We're finished if we're not ready. Finished! Well, Jim, Granovitz asked, what do you think? Is it right? What do you think our chances are? Delvecchio sighed. Being the leader wasn't always a very comfortable position. I know how you feel, Bill, he said with a nod to Rain. But... I'm afraid I have to agree with Sheridan. Your scheme doesn't have that much of a chance. And there are bigger stakes. If the survivors have screeches and heavy armament, they'll be able to breach the station walls. You all know what that would mean. Our supply ship is due in a month. If the fungus gets into Greywater, then Earth won't have to worry about the Findai anymore. 
the fungus would put a permanent stop to the war. It doesn't like its hosts to fight each other. Sheridan was nodding again. Yes, so we have to destroy the survivors. It's the only way. Andrews, the quiet mycologist, spoke up for the first time. We might try to capture them, he suggested. I've been experimenting with methods of killing the fungus without damaging the hosts. We could keep them under sedation until I got somewhere. How many years would that take? Sheridan snapped. Delvecchio cut in. No, we've got no reason to think we'll even be able to fight them successfully. All the odds are with them. Capture would be clearly impossible. But rescue isn't. Rain was still insistent. We should gamble, he said, pounding the radar console with his fist. It's worth it. We settled that, Bill, Delvecchio said. No rescue. We've got only seven men to fight off maybe hundreds. I can't afford to throw any away on a useless, dramatic gesture. Seven men trying to fight off hundreds sounds like a useless, dramatic gesture to me, Rain said. Especially since there may only be a few survivors who could be rescued. But what if all of them are left? said Sheridan. And all of them have already been taken over by the fungus. Be serious, Rain. The spore dust is everywhere. As soon as they breathe unfiltered air, they'll take it in. And in seventy-two hours, they'll be like the rest of the animal life on this planet. Then the fungus will send them against us. God damn it, Sheridan! yelled Rain. They could still be in their pods. Maybe they don't even know what happened. Maybe they're still asleep. How the hell do I know? If we get there before they come out, we can save them. Or something. We've got to try. No. Look, the crash is sure to have shut the ship down. They'll be awake. First thing they'll do is check their charts. Only the fungus is classified, so they won't know what the hell of a place they've landed on. All they will know is that Greywater is the only human settlement here. They'll head towards us, and they'll get infected and possessed. That's why we have to work fast, Rain said. We should arm three or four of the flyers and leave at once. Now. Delvecchio decided to put an end to the argument. The last one like this had gone on all night. This is getting us nowhere, he said sharply fixing both Sheridan and Rain with hard stares. It's useless to discuss it any longer. All we're doing is getting mad at each other. Besides, it's late. He looked at his watch. Let's break for six hours or so and resume at dawn. When we're cooler and less tired, we'll be able to think more clearly, and Santa Pay and Mid-Earths will be back then, too. They deserve a voice in this. There were three rumbles of agreement and one sharp note of dissent. No, said Rain, loudly. He stood up, towering over the others in their seats. That's too late. There's no time to lose. Bill, you, Delvecchio started. Those men might be grabbed while we sleep, Rain went on, ploughing right over his superior. We've got to do something. No, said Delvecchio, and that's an order. We'll talk about it in the morning. Get some sleep, Bill. Rain looked around for support. He got none. 
He glared at Del Vecchio briefly, and he turned and left the tower. Del Vecchio had trouble sleeping. He woke up at least twice between sheets that were cold and sticky with sweat. In his nightmare, he was out beyond Greywater, knee-deep in the grey-green slime, collecting samples for analysis. While he worked, he watched a big amphibious mud tractor in the distance, wallowing towards him. On top was another human, his features invisible behind filter mask and skin thins. The dream Del Vecchio waved to the tractor as it neared, and the driver waved back. Then he pulled up nearby, climbed down from the cab and grasped Del Vecchio in a firm handshake. Only by that time Del Vecchio could see through the transparent filter mask. It was Ryerson, the dead geologist, his friend Ryerson. But his head was swollen grossly, and there were trails of fungus hanging from each ear. After the second nightmare, he gave it up as a bad show. They had never found Ryerson or Blatt after the crash, though they knew from the impact that there wouldn't be much to find. But Del Vecchio dreamed of them often, and he suspected that some of the others did too. He dressed in darkness and made his way to the central tower. Sanderpay, the telecom man, was on watch. He was asleep in the small ready bunk near the laser turret where the station monitors could awaken him quickly if anything big approached the walls. Reinforced duraloy was tough stuff, but the fungus had some pretty wicked creatures at its call, and there were the airlocks to consider. Delvecchio decided to let Sanderpay sleep and went to the window. The big spotlights mounted on the wall flooded the perimeter around Greywater with bright white lights that made the mud glisten sickly. He could see drifting spores reflected briefly in the beams. They seemed unusually thick, especially toward the west, but that was probably his imagination. Then again, it might be a sign that the fungus was uneasy. The spores had always been ten times as thick around grey water as elsewhere on the planet's surface. That had been one of the first pieces of evidence that the damned fungus was intelligent and hostile. They still weren't sure just how intelligent, but of the hostility there was no more doubt. The parasitic fungus infected every animal on the planet and had used most of them to attack the station at one point or another. It wanted them. So they had the blizzard of spores that rained on Greywater for more than a year now. The overhead force screens kept them out, though and the sterilisation chambers killed any that clung to mud tractors or skin thins or drifted into the airlocks. But the fungus kept trying. Across the room, Sanderpay yawned and sat up in his bunk. Delvecchio turned towards him. Morning, Otis. Sanderpay yawned again and stifled it with a big red hand. Morning, he replied untangling himself from the bunk in a gangle of long arms and legs. What's going on? You taking Bill's shift? Delvecchio stiffened. What? Was rain supposed to relieve you? Uh-huh, said Sanderpay, looking at the clock. Hour ago. The bastard. I get cramped sleeping in this thing. Why can't we make it a little more comfortable, I ask you? Delvecchio was hardly listening. 
He ignored Sandepay and moved swiftly to the intercom panel against one wall. Granovitz was closest to the motor pool. He rang him. A sleepy voice answered. Ike, Del Vecchio said. This is Jim. Check the motor pool, quick. Count the flyers. Granovitz acknowledged the order. He was back in less than two minutes, but it seemed longer. Flyer five is missing, he said. He sounded awake all of a sudden. Shit, said Del Vecchio. He slammed down the intercom and whirled towards Sandepe. Get on the radio fast. There's a flyer missing. Raise it. Sandepe looked baffled but complied. Del Vecchio stood over him, muttering obscenities and thinking worse ones while he searched through the static. Finally an answer. I read you, Otis, Rain's voice, of course. Del Vecchio leaned towards the transmitter. I told you no rescue. The reply was equal parts laughter and static. Did you? Hell, I guess I wasn't paying attention, Jim. You know how long conferences always bored me. I don't want a dead hero on my hands. Turn back. I intend to. After I deliver the vaccine, I'll bring as many of the soldiers with me as I can. The rest can walk. The immunity wears off, but it should last long enough if they're landed where we predict. Delvecchio swore. Damn it, Bill. Turn back. Remember Ryerson? Sure I do. He was a geologist. Little guy with a pot belly, wasn't he? Rain. There was an edge to Delvecchio's voice. Laughter. Oh, take it easy, Jim. I'll make it. Ryerson was careless and it killed him. And Black too. I won't be. I've rigged some lasers up. Already got two big swamp bats that came at me. Huge fuckers. Easy to burn down. Two? The fungus can send hundreds if it gets an itch. Damn it! Listen to me. Come back. Will do, said Rain. With my guests. Then he signed off with a laugh. Galvecchio straightened and frowned. Sandepe seemed to think a comment was called for and managed a limp. Well, Delvecchio never heard him. Keep on the frequency, Otis, he said. There's a chance the damn fool might make it. I want to know the minute he comes back on. He started across the room. Look, try to raise him every five minutes or so. He probably won't answer. He's in for a world of shit if that jury rig laser fails him. Delvecchio was at the intercom. He punched Granovich's station. Jim again, Ike. What kind of laser's missing from the shop? I'll hold on. No need to, came the reply. Sorry, just after I found the flyer gone. I think one of the standard tabletop cutters, the plow job. He's done some sport welding, left the stat on the power box. Ned found that, and places where he's done some bracketing. Also, one of the vacuotainers is gone. Okay, thanks, Ike. I want everybody up here in ten minutes. War Council. Oh, Sheridan will be so glad. No. Yeah, maybe he will. He clicked off, punched for Andrews. The mycologist took a while to answer. Arnold? Delvecchio snapped when the acknowledgement finally came. 
Can you tell me what's gone from the stores? There were a few minutes of silence. Then Andrews was back. Yeah, Jim. A lot of medical supplies. Syringes, bandages, vaccine, plastiplints, even some body bags. What's going on? Rain. And from what you say, it sounds like he's on a real mercy mission there. How much did he take? Enough, I guess. Nothing we can't replace, however. Okay. Meeting up here in ten... five minutes. Well, all right. Andrews clicked off. Dothakio hit the master control, opening all the bitch boxes. For the first time in four months, since the slinkers had massed near the station walls. That had been a false alarm. This he knew wasn't. Meeting in five minutes in the turret he said. The words rang through the station, echoing off the cool, humming walls. That if we don't make plans now, it'll be way too late. Delvecchio paused and looked at the four men lounging on the chairs. Sandepe was still at the radio, his long legs spilling into the centre of the room. But the other four were clustered around the table, clutching coffee cups. None of them seemed to be paying close attention. Granovitz was staring absently out the window, as usual, his eyes and forebrain mulling the fungus that grew on the trees around Greywater. Andrews was scribbling in a notepad, very slowly, doodling. Ned Mittertz, big and blonde and blocky, was a bundle of nervous tension. Bill Rain was his closest friend. He alternated between drumming his fingers on the tabletop swilling his coffee and tugging nervously at his drooping blonde moustache. Sheridan's bullet-shaped head stared at the floor. But they were all listening in their way. Even Sandepe at the radio. When Delvecchio paused, he pulled his long legs back under him and began to speak. "'I'm sorry it's come to this, Jim,' he said, rubbing his ear to restore circulation. "'It's bad enough those soldiers are out there. Now... Billy's gone after them and he's in the same spot. I think, well, we have to forget him and worry about attacks. It's hard to take, I know. If he makes it, he makes it. If he finds them, he finds them. If they've been exposed in three days, they'll be part of the fungus. Whether they take the vaccine or not. If he brings them back, we watch them three days to see if symptoms develop. If they do, we have to kill them. If not, then nobody's hurt, and when the rest walk, we watch for symptoms in them. But those are iffy things. If he doesn't make it, he's dead. Chances are the troopers are dead. Or exposed. Either way, we prepare for the worst and forget rain until we see him. So, what I'm asking for now are practical suggestions as to how we defend ourselves against well-armed soldiers, controlled by some intelligence we do not understand. He looked at the men again. Sandepe whooped. He grabbed the console mic as they jumped and looked at him. Go ahead, Bill, he said, twisting the volume knob over to the wall speaker. The others winced as the roar of frequency noise swept the room. Right, the damn thing's sending insects into the ship, smearing 
Smear windscreen on instrument, Rain's voice. There was a sound in the background like heavy rain. Swamp bats just before they came, probably coming at me now. Goddamn laser mount loosened. There was a dull thud in the background. No lateral control. Got that bastard. Oh, my God. Two more dull thuds. A sound like metal eating itself. In the trees. Altitude. Going down. Swamp bats. Something just got sucked in the engine. Damn. No power. Nothing. If. Followed by frequency noise. Sandapay, his thin face blank and white, waited a few seconds to see if more transmission came through, then tried to raise rain on the frequency. He turned the volume down again after a while. I think that's about what we can expect will happen to us in a couple of days, said Del Vecchio. That fungus will stop at nothing to get intelligent life. Once it has the soldiers who survive... They'll come after the station, with their weapons. Well, snapped Sheridan, he knew not to go out there in that flyer. Mithurt slammed down his coffee cup and rose. God damn you, Sheridan. Can't you hold it in even a minute? Bill's probably dead out there, and all you want to do is say, I told you so. Sheridan jumped to his feet, too. You think I like listening to someone get killed on the radio? Just because I didn't like him? You think it's fun, huh? You think I want to fight somebody who's been trained to do it, huh? He looked at them, all of them, and wiped the sweat from his brow with the back of his hand. I don't. I'm scared. I don't like making plans for war when men could be out there wounded and dying with no help coming. He paused. His voice stretched thin began to waver. Rain was a fool to go out there, but maybe he was the only one who let his humanity come through. I made myself ignore them. I tried to get you all to plan for war in case any of the soldiers made it. Damn you! I'm afraid to go out there. I'm afraid to go near the stuff even inside the station. I'm a zoologist, but I can't even work. Every animal on the planet has that... that... stuff on it. I can't bear to touch it. I don't want to fight either. But we're going to have to, sooner or later. He wiped his head again, looked at Del Vecchio. I... I am sorry, Jim. Ned, too. The rest of you. I'm... I... I just don't like it any more than you. But we have to. He sat down very tiredly. Del Vecchio rubbed his nose and reflected again that being the nominal leader was more trouble than it was worth. Sheridan had never opened up like this before. He wasn't quite sure how to deal with it. Look, he finally said, it's okay, Eldon. It was the first time he could remember that he, or any of them, had used Sheridan's first name. This isn't going to be easy on any of us. You may be right about our humanity. Sometimes you have to put humanity aside to think about... Well, I don't know. The fungus has finally found a way to get to us. It will attack us with the soldiers like it has with the slinkers and the swamp bats and the rest. 
Like it's trying to do now, while we're talking, with the burrowing worms and the insects and the Arthropolia. The station's defenses will take care of those. All we have to worry about are the soldiers. All? said Granovitz sharply. That and what we'll do if they breach the wall or the field. The field wasn't built to take screechers or lasers or explosives, just to keep out insects and flying animals. I think one of the first things we've got to do is find a way to beef up the field, like running in the mains from the other power sources. But that still leaves the wall and the entry chambers, our weakest links. Ten or twenty good rounds of high explosives will bring it right down. How do we fight back? Maybe we don't, said Mitterts. His face was still hard and angry, but now the anger was turned against the fungus instead of Sheridan. Maybe we take the fight to them. The suggestions flew thick and fast from there on. Half of them were impossible, a quarter improbable. The most of what were left were crazy. At the end of an hour, they had gotten past the point of mining, pitfalls, electrocution. To Delvecchio's ears, it was the strangest conversation he had ever heard. It was full of the madnesses men plan against each other, made more strange by the nature of the men themselves. They were all scientists and technicians, not soldiers, not killers. They talked and planned without enthusiasm, with the quiet talk of men who must talk before being pallbearers at a friend's funeral, or the pace of men who must take their turns as members of a firing squad the next morning. In a way, they were. An hour later, Del Vecchio was standing up to his ankles in grey-green mud, wrestling with a power saw and sweating freely under his skin thins. The saw was hooked up to the power supply on his mud tractor, and Mitterts was sitting atop the tractor, with a hunting laser resting across his knee, occasionally lifting it to burn down one of the slinkers slithering through the underbrush. Delvecchio had already cut through the bases of four of the biggest trees around the greywater perimeter, about three-quarters of the way through anyway, just enough to weaken them, so the turret laser could finish the job quickly when the need arose. It was a desperate idea, but they were desperate men. The fifth tree was giving him trouble. It was a different species from the others, gnarled and overhung with creepers and rock-hard. He was only halfway through and already he'd had to change the blade twice. That made him edgy. One slip with the blade, one slash in the skin thins, and the spores could get at him. Damn thing, he said, when the teeth began to snap off for the third time. It guts like it's half petrified. Damn! Look at the bright side, suggested Mitterts. It'll make a mighty big splat when it falls. And even Durali armor should crumple pretty good. Delvecchio missed the humour. He changed the blade without comment and resumed cutting. That should do it, he said after a while. Looks deep enough. But maybe we should use the lasers on this kind if we hit any more of them. That's a lot of power, said Mitterts. Can we afford it? He raised his laser suddenly and fired at something behind Delvecchio. The slinker, 
a four-foot-long mass of scales and claws reared briefly from its stomach and then fell again, splattering mud in their direction. Its dying scream was a brief punctuation mark. Those things are thick today, Mithertz commented. Delvecchio climbed up into the tractor. You're imagining things, he said. No, I'm not, Mithertz sounded serious. I'm the ecologist, remember. I know we don't have a natural ecology around here. The fungus senses its nasties and keeps the harmless life forms away. But now there's even more than usual. He gestured with the laser. Off through the underbrush, two big slinkers could be seen chewing at the creepers around the tree, the fungus hanging like a shroud over the back of their skulls. Look there. What do you think they're doing? Eating, said Del Vecchio. That's normal enough. He started the tractor and moved it forward jerkily. Mud turned into a watery slime, spouted out behind the vehicle in great gushes. Slinkers are omnivores, Mithert said, but they prefer meat. Only eat creepers when there's no prey. But there's plenty round here. He stopped, stared at the scene, banged the butt of the laser rifle on the cab floor in a fit of sudden nervous tension. Then he resumed in a burst of words. Damn it! Damn it! They're clearing a path! His voice was an accusation. A path for the soldiers to march on! starting at our end and working towards them. They'll get here faster if they don't have to cut through the undergrowth. Del Vecchio at the wheel snorted. <laughs> don't be absurd. What makes you think it's absurd? Who knows what the fungus is up to? A living ecology. It can turn every living thing on this planet against us if it wants to. Eating a path through a swamp is nothing to something like that. Mithertz's voice was distant and brooding. Delvecchio didn't like the way the conversation was going. He kept silent. They went on to the next tree, and then the next. But Mithertz, his mind racing, was getting more and more edgy. He kept fidgeting in the tractor and playing with the rifle, and more than once he absently tried to yank at his moustache, only to be stopped by the filter mask. Finally, Del Vecchio decided it was time to head in. Decontamination took the usual two hours. They waited patiently in the entry chamber and sterilization rooms while the pumps, sprays, heat lamps and ultraviolet systems did their work on them and the tractor. They shed their sterilized skin thins as they came through the final airlock. God damn, said Del Vecchio. I hope we don't have to go out again. Decon takes more time than getting the work done. Sandipay met them smiling. I think I've found something we could use. Nearly forgot about them. Yeah? What? Mithertz asked, as he unloaded the laser charge and placed it back in the recharge rack. He punched several buttons absently. The sounding rockets. Dovecchio slapped his head. Of course. Damn! Didn't even consider them. His mind went back. Blatt, the dead meteorologist, had fired off the six-foot-sounding rockets regularly for the first few weeks, gaining data on the fungus. They had discovered that spores were frequently found up to 50,000 feet, and a few even reached as high as 80,000. 
After Blatt discovered that, he still made a twice-daily ritual of firing the sounding rockets to collect information on the planet's shifting wind patterns. They had weather balloons, but those were next to useless. The swamp bats usually vectored in on them soon after they were released. After Blatt's death, however, the readings hadn't meant as much, so the firings were discontinued. But the launching tubes were still functional, as far as he knew. You think you can rig them up as small guided missiles? Delvecchio asked. Yup, Sanderpace said with a grin. I already started. But they won't be very accurate. For one thing, they'll reach about a mile in altitude before we can begin to control them. Then we'll be forcing the trajectory. They'll want to continue in a long arc. We'll want them back down almost to the launching point. It'll be like wrestling a two-headed alligator. I'm thinking of filling half of them with that explosive Andrews is trying to make, and the rest with white phosphorus. But that might be tricky. Well, do whatever you can, Otis, said Delvecchio. This is good news. We needed this kind of punch. Maybe it isn't as hopeless as I thought. It hurts had been listening carefully, but he still looked glum. Anything over the commo, he put in, from Bill. Sander Pay shook his head. Just the usual solar shit and some mighty nice whistlers. Must be a hell of a thunderstorm somewhere within a thousand miles of here. I'll let you know if anything comes in, though. Mithertz didn't answer. He was looking at the armory and shaking his head. Delvecchio followed his eyes. Eight lasers were on the racks. Eight lasers and sixteen charges, standard station allotment. Each charge good for maybe fifty-fifth second bursts. Five tranquilizer rifles, an assortment of syringes, darts and projectiles all of which would be useless against armoured infantry. Maybe if they could adapt some of the heavier projectiles to HE. But such a small amount wouldn't dent your alloy. Hell. You know, said Mithertz, if they get inside, we might as well hang it up. If, said Delvecchio. Night at Greywater Station. They had started watch and watch. Andrews was topside at the laser turret and sensor board. Delvecchio, Granovitz and Sanderpay lingered over dinner in the cafeteria below. Mithertz and Sheridan had already turned in. Sanderpay was talking of the day's accomplishments. He figured he had gotten somewhere with the rockets, and Andrews had managed to put together some explosive from the ingredients in Rain's lab. Arnold doesn't like it much, though, Sanderpay was saying. He wants to get back to his fungus samples. Says he's out of his field and not too sure he knows what he's doing. He's right, too. Bill was your chemist. Bill isn't here, Delvecchio snapped. He was in no mood for criticism. Someone has to do it. At least Arnold has some background in organic chemistry, no matter how long ago it was. That's more than the rest of us have. He shook his head. Am I supposed to do it? I'm an entomologist. What good is that? I feel useless. Yep, I know, said Sanderpay. Still, it's not easy for me with the rockets either. 
I had to take half the propellant from each one. Work nine hours, finish three. We're going to be fighting all the non-laws of aerodynamics trying to force those things down near the starting point. And everybody else is having problems too. We tinker and curse and it's all a blind alley. If we do this, we got to do that. But if we do that, it won't work. This is a research station. So maybe it looks like a fort. That doesn't make it one. And we're scientists, not demolition experts. Granovitz gave a thin chuckle. I'm reminded of that time back on Earth in the 20th century when that German scientist, uh, von Braun, von, von Braun, and his men were advised that the enemy forces would soon be there. The military began giving them close-order drill and marksmanship courses. They wanted them to meet the enemy on the very edge of their missile complex and fight them hand to hand. What happened? said Sanderpay. Oh, they ran three hundred miles and surrendered, Granovitz replied dryly. Delvecchio drowned his two hundredth cup of coffee and put his feet up on the table. Great, he said. Only we've got no place to run to. So we're going to have to meet them on the edge of our little missile complex. Or whatever. And soon. Granovitz nodded. Three days from now, I figure. That's if the fungus doesn't help them, said Del Vecchio. The other two looked at him. What do you mean? asked Granovitz. When Ned and I were out this morning, we saw slinkers, lots of them, eating away at the creepers to the west of the station. Granovitz had a light in his eyes, but Sanderpay, still baffled, said, So? Midertz thinks they're clearing a path. Uh-oh, said Granovitz. He stroked his chin with a thin hand. That's very interesting and very bad news. Clearing away at both ends and all along, as I'd think it would do. Mm. Sanderpay looked from Del Vecchio to Granovitz and back, grimaced, uncalled his legs and then called them around his chair again in a different position. He said nothing. Ah, yes, yes, Granovitz was saying. It all fits, all ties in. We should have anticipated this. A total assault with the life of a planet working for our destruction. It's the fungus. A total ecology, as Ned likes to call it. A classic case of the parasitic collective mind. But we can't understand it. We don't know what its basic precepts are, its formative experiences. We don't know. No research has been carried out on anything like it. Except maybe the water jellies of Noborn. But that was a collective organism formed of separate colonies for mutual benefit. A benign form, as it were. As far as I can tell, Greywater... The fungus is a single, all-encompassing mass which took over this planet starting from some single central point. He rubbed his hands together and nodded. Yes, based on that, we can make guesses as to what it thinks and how it will act. And this fits this total hostility.
How so? asked Sandipay. Well, it's never run up against any other intelligence, you see. Only lower forms. That's important. So it judges us by itself, the only mind it has known. It is driven to dominate, to take over all life which it comes in contact. So it thinks we are the same, fears that we are trying to take over this planet as it once did. Only, like I've been saying all along, it doesn't see us as the intelligence. We're animals, small, mobile. It's known life like that before, and all lower form. But the station itself is something new, something outside its experience. It sees the station as the intelligence, I'll bet. And intelligence like itself. Landing, establishing itself, sending out extensions, poking at it and its hosts. And us? Us poor animals, the fungus sees as unimportant tools. Del Vecchio sighed. Yeah, like, we've heard this before. I agree that it's a persuasive theory. But how do you prove it? Proof is all around us said Granovitz. This station is under a constant around-the-clock attack. But we can go outside for samples, and the odds are fifty-fifty whether we'll be attacked or not. Why? Well, we don't kill every slinker we see, do we? Of course not. And the fungus doesn't try to kill us. Except if we get annoying. Because we're not important, it thinks. But something like the flyers, mobile but not animal, Strange, it tries to eradicate because it perceives them as a major... Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Extensions of grey water. Then why the spores? Delvecchio said. Granovich dismissed that with an airy wave. Oh, the fungus would like to take us over, sure, to deprive the station of hosts. But it's the station it wants to eradicate. It can't conceive of cooperating with another intelligence. Maybe. Who knows? It had to destroy rival fungal colonies of its own species before it came to dominate this planet. Once it perceives intelligence, 
It is threatened, and it perceives intelligence in the station. He was going to go on, but Del Vecchio suddenly took his feet from the table, sat up and said, Uh-oh. Granovitz frowned. What? Del Vecchio stabbed at him with a finger. Ike, think about this theory of yours. What if you're right? Then how is the fungus going to perceive the spaceship? Granovich thought a moment, nodded to himself and gave a slow, long whistle. So? How? said Sandepe. What are you talking about? Granovich turned on him. The spaceship was mobile, but not animal. Like the station. It came out of the sky, landed, destroyed a large area of the fungus and host forms, and hasn't moved since. Like the station. The fungus probably sees it as another station, another threat, or an extension of our station. Yeah, said Del Vecchio, but it gets worse. If you're right, then... Maybe the fungus is launching an all-out attack right at this moment, on the spaceship hull, while it lets the men march away unharmed. There was a moment of dead silence. Sandepe finally broke it, looking at each of the others in turn and saying in a low voice, Oh, wow, I see. Granovitz had a thoughtful expression on his face, and he was rubbing his chin again. No, he said at last. You'd think that, but I don't think that what is happening. Why not? asked El Vecchio. Well, the fungus may not see the soldiers as the major threat, but it would at least try to take them over, as it does with us. And once it had them and their weapons, it would have the tools to obliterate the station and the spaceship. That's almost sure to happen, too. Those soldiers will be easy prey for the spores. They'll fall to the fungus like ripe fruit. Del Vecchio clearly looked troubled. Yeah, probably. But this bothers me. If there's even a slight chance that the soldiers might get here without being taken over, we'll have to change our plans. But there's no chance of that, Granovitz said, shaking his head. The fungus already has those men. Why would it be clearing a path? Sandepe nodded in agreement, but Del Vecchio wasn't that sure. We don't know that it's clearing a path, he insisted. That's just what Millerts thinks is happening, based on very scant evidence. We shouldn't accept it as an accomplished fact. It makes sense, though. Granovitz came back. It would speed up the soldiers getting here, speed up the... The alarm from the turret began to hoot and clang. Slinkers, said Andrews. I think I'll buy those trees you were working on. He drew on a pair of infrared goggles and depressed a stud on the console. There was a hum. Del Vecchio peered through the binoculars. Think maybe it's sending them to see what we're up to. Definitely, said Granovich, standing just behind him and looking out the window from over his shoulder. I don't think it'll do anything, said Del Vecchio, hopefully. Mines or anything foreign it would destroy, of course. We've proved that. 
but all we did is slash a few trees. I doubt that it will be able to figure out why. Do you think I should fire a few times? Andrews asked from the laser console. Oh, I don't know, said Del Vecchio. Wait a bit. See what they do. The long, thick lizards were moving around the tree trunks. Some slithered through the fungus and the mud, and others scratched and clawed at the notched trees. Switch on some of the directional sensors, said Del Vecchio. Sandipay at the sensor bank nodded and began flicking on the directional mics. First to come in was the constant tick of the continual spore bombardment on the receiver head. Then, as the mic rotated, came the hissing screams of the slinkers. And then the rending sound of a falling tree. Del Vecchio, watching through the binoculars, suddenly felt very cold. The tree came down into the mud with a crashing thud. Slime flew from all sides, and several slinkers hissed out their lives beneath the trunk. Shit, said Del Vecchio. And then, fire, Arnold. Andrews pushed buttons, sighted in the night scope, lined the cross notches up on a slinker near the fallen tree and fired. To those not watching through goggles or binoculars, a tiny red-white light appeared in the air between the turret laser and the group of lizards. A gargling sound mixed with the slinker hissing. One of the animals thrashed suddenly, and then lay still. The others began slithering away into the undergrowth. There was stillness for a second. And on another part of the perimeter, a second tree began to fall. Andrews hit more buttons, and the big turret laser moved and fired again. Another slinker died. Then, without waiting for another crash, the laser began to swivel to hit the slinkers around the other trees. Del Vecchio lowered the binoculars very slowly. I think we just wasted a day's work out there, he said. Somehow the fungus guessed what we were up to. It's smarter than we gave it credit for. Rain, said Granovitz. Rain? said Del Vecchio, with a questioning look. He knew we'd try to defend the station. Given that knowledge, it's logical for the fungus to destroy anything we do out there. Maybe Ren survived the crash of his flyer. Maybe the fungus finally got a human. Oh, shit, said Del Vecchio with expression. Yeah, sure, you might be right. Or maybe it's all a big coincidence. A bunch of accidents. How do we know? How do we, we know anything about what the damn thing is thinking or doing or planning? He shook his head. Damn, we're fighting blind. Every time something happens, there are a dozen reasons that might have been behind it, and every plan we make has to have a dozen alternatives. It's not that bad, said Granovitz. We're not entirely in the dark. We've proved that the fungus can take over earth forms. We've proved that it gets at least some knowledge from them, that it absorbs at least part of what they knew. We don't know how big a part, true. However, however, if, but maybe... Del Vecchio swore, looking very disgusted. Damn it, Ike! How big a part is the crucial question? If it has rain, and if it knows everything he knew, then it knows everything there is to know about Greywater and its defenses. In that case, 
What kind of chance will we have? Well, said Granovitz. He paused, frowned, stroked his chin. I... Wait. There are other aspects to this that should be thought out. Let me work on this a while. Fine, said Delvecchio. You do that. He turned to Andrews. Arnold, keep them off the trees as best you can. I'll be back up to relieve you in four hours. Andrews nodded. Okay, I think, he said. His eyes locked firmly on the night scope. Delvecchio gave brief instructions to Sandepe, then turned and left the turret. He went straight to his bunk. It took him the better part of an hour to drift to sleep. Delvecchio's Dream He was old and cool. He saw the station from all sides in a shifting montage of images, some near the ground, some from above, wheeling on silent wings. In one image he saw, or felt it, as a worm must feel the presence of the heavy weight of sunlight. He saw the station twisted, old, wrecked. He saw the station in a series of images from inside. He saw a skeleton in the corner of an indefinite lab, and saw through the eyes of the skull out into the broken station. Outside he saw heaped duraloy bodies with grey-green growth sprouting from the cracked faceplates. And he saw out of the faceplates, out into the swamp. Everywhere was grey-green and damp and old and cold. Everywhere. Delvecchio awoke sweating. His watch was uneventful. The slinkers had vanished as suddenly as they had assembled, and he only fired the laser once at a careless swamp bat that flew near the perimeter. Midhurts relieved him. Delvecchio caught several more hours of sleep, or at least of bunk time. He spent a large chunk of the time lying awake, thinking. When he walked into the cafeteria the next morning, an argument was raging. Granovitz turned to him immediately. Jim, listen, he began, gesturing with his hands. I've thought about this all night. We've been missing something obvious. If this thing has rain, or the soldiers, or any human, this is the chance we've been waiting for. The chance to communicate, to begin a mutual understanding. With their knowledge, it will have a common tongue with us. We shouldn't fight it at all. We should try to talk to it, try to make it understand how different we are. You're crazy, Granovitz, Sheridan said loudly. Stark, raving, mad. You go and talk to that stuff, not me. It's after us. It's been after us all along, and now it's sending those soldiers to kill us all. We have to kill them first. But this is our chance, Granovitz said. To begin to understand, to reach that mind, to... That was your job all along, Sheridan snapped. You're the XT psych. Just because you didn't do your job is no reason to ask us to risk our lives to do it for you. Granovitz glowered. Sandepe, sitting next to him, was more vocal. Sheridan, he said, sometimes I wish we could throw you out to the fungus. You'd look good with grey-green growths coming out of your ears. Yep. Delvecchio gave hard glances to all of them. Shut up, all of you, he said simply. I've had enough of this nonsense. 
I've been doing some thinking, too. He pulled up a chair and sat down. Andrews was at another table, quietly finishing his breakfast. Delvecchio motioned him over, and he joined them. I've got some things I want to announce, Delvecchio said. Number one, no more arguments. We waste an incredible amount of time hashing out every detail and yelling at each other, and we don't have time to waste. So no more. I make the decisions, and I don't want any screaming and kicking. If you don't like it, you're free to elect another leader. Understand? He looked at each of them in turn. Sheridan squirmed a little under the gaze, but none of them objected. Okay, Delvecchio said finally. If that's settled, then we'll move on. He looked at Granovitz. First thing is this idea of yours, Ike. Now, you want us to talk. Sorry, I don't buy it. Just last night you were telling us how the fungus, because of its childhood traumas, was bound to be hostile. Yes, began Granovitz, but with the additional knowledge it will get from no arguments, Delvecchio said sharply. Granovitz subsided. Delvecchio continued. What do you think it will be doing while we're talking? Hitting us with everything it's got, if your theory was correct. And it sounded good to me. We're dead men if we're not ready. So we'll be ready. To fight, not talk. Sheridan was smirking. Delvecchio turned on him next. But we're not gonna hit them with everything we've got as soon as we see them, like you want, Sheridan, he said. Ike brought up a point last night that's been bothering me ever since, nagging at me. There's an outside chance the fungus might not even try to take over the soldiers. It might not be smart enough to realize they're important. It might concentrate on the spaceship. Sheridan sat up straight. We have to hit them, he said. They'll kill us, Del Vecchio. You don't... Sandepe, surprisingly, joined in. It's eating a path, he said, and the trees. And this morning, Jim, look out there. Slinkers and swamp bats all around. It's got them, I know it. It wouldn't be building up this way otherwise. Delvecchio waved them both silent. I know, Otis, I know. You're right. All the signs say that it has them. But we have to be sure. We wait until we see them, until we know. Then... If they're taken, hit them with everything at once. It has to be hard. If it becomes a struggle, we've lost. They outnumber and outgun us, and in a fight they'd breach the station easy. Only the fungus might just march them up. Maybe we can kill them all before they know what hit them. Granovitz looked doubtful. Sheridan looked more than doubtful. Del Vecchio, that's ridiculous. Ridiculous. Every moment we hesitate increases our risk. And for such a ridiculous chance, of course it will take them. Sheridan, I've had about enough of you, Delvecchio said quietly. Listen for a change. There's two chances. One, that the fungus might be too dumb to take them over, and one, that it might be too smart. Granovitz raised his eyebrows. 
Andrews cleared his throat. Sheridan just looked insulted. If it has rain, Bill Vecchio said, maybe it knows all about us. Maybe it won't take the soldiers over on purpose. It knows from rain that we plan to destroy them. Maybe it will just wait. But why would it have slinkers clearing a... Sandepay began, then shut up. Oh, oh, no, Jim, they couldn't. You're not merely assuming the fungus is very intelligent, Jim, Granovich said. You're assuming it's very devious as well. No, said Delvecchio, I'm not assuming anything. I'm merely pointing out a possibility. A terrible possibility, but one we should be ready for. For over a year now, we've been constantly underestimating the fungus. At every test, it has proven just a bit more intelligent than we figured. We can't make another mistake like that. No margin for error this time. Granovitz gave a reluctant nod. There's more, said Delvecchio. I want those missiles finished today, Otis, in case they get here sooner than we've anticipated. And the explosive too, Arnold. And I don't want any more griping. You two are relieved of your watches until you finish those projects. The rest of us will double up. Also, from now on, we all wear skin thins inside the station, in case the attack comes suddenly and the screens are breached. Everybody was nodding. Finally, we throw out all the experiments. I want every bit of fungus and every grey water life form within the station eradicated. Delvecchio thought of his dream again and shuddered mentally. Sheridan slapped the table and smiled. Now that's the kind of thing I like to hear. I've wanted to get rid of those things for weeks. Granovitz looked unhappy, though, and Andrews looked very unhappy. Delvecchio looked at each in turn. All I have is a few small animals, Jim, Granovich said. Root snuffs and such. They're harmless enough and safely enclosed. I've been trying to reach the fungus, establish some sort of communications. No, said Delvecchio. Sorry, Ike, but we can't take the chance. If the walls are breached or the station damaged, we might lose power. Then we'd have contamination inside and out. It's too risky. You can get new animals. Andrews cleared his throat. Uh, well, my cultures, he said. I'm, I'm just getting them broken down, isolating the properties of the fungus strains. Six months of research, Jim, and, well, I, I, I think... He shook his head. You've got your research. You can duplicate it. If we live through this. Yes, well... Andrews was hesitant. But the cultures will have to be started over. So much time. And Jim... He hesitated again and looked at the others. Delvecchio smiled grimly. Go ahead, Arnold. They might die soon. Maybe they should know. Andrews nodded. I'm... I'm getting somewhere, Jim. With my work. The real work, the... The whole reason for Greywater. I've bred a mutation of the fungus, a non-intelligent variety. 
very virulent, very destructive of its hosts. A and I'm in the final stages now. It's only a matter of getting the mutant to breed in the Findai atmosphere. And I'm near. I'm so near. He looked at each of them in turn, eyes imploring. If you let me continue, I'll have it soon. And they could dump it on the Findai homeworlds. And, well, it, it would mean an end to the war. All those lives saved. Think about all the men who will die if I'm delayed. He stopped suddenly, awkwardly. There was a long silence around the table. Granovitz broke it. He stroked his chin and gave a funny little chuckle. And I thought this was such a bold, clean venture, he said, his voice bitter. To grope towards the new intelligence unlike any we had known. To try to find and talk to a mind perhaps unique in this universe. And now you tell me all my work was a decoy for biological warfare. Even here I can't get away from that damned war. He shook his head. Greywater Station. What a lie. It had to be this way, Ike, Delvecchio said. The potential for military application was too great to pass up, but the Findai would have easily found out about a big, full-scale biowar research project. But teams like Greywater's routine planetary investigation teams are common. The Findai can't bother to check every one. And they don't. Granovich was staring at the table. I don't suppose it matters, he said glumly. We all may die in a few days anyway. This doesn't change that. But... But... He stopped. Delvecchio shrugged. I'm sorry, Ike. He looked at Andrews. And I'm sorry about the experiments too, Arnold. But your cultures have to go. They're a danger to us inside the station. But, well, the war. All those people. Andrews looked anguished. If we don't make it through this, we lose it all anyway, Arnold, Delvecchio said. Sandepe put a hand on Andrew's shoulder. He's right. It's not worth it. Andrews nodded. Dovacchio rose. All right, he said. We've got that settled. Now we get to work. Arnold, the explosives. Otis, the rockets. Ike and I will take care of dumping the experiments. But first, I'm going to go brief mid-earths, okay? The answer was a weak chorus of agreement. It took them only a few hours to destroy the work of a year. The rockets, the explosives, and the other defences took longer. But in time they too were ready. And then they waited, sweaty and nervous and uncomfortable in their skin thins. Sandepe monitored the Como system constantly. One day. Two. Three. A day of incredible tension. Four. And the strain began to tell. Five, and they relaxed a bit. The enemy was late. 
You think they'll try to contact us first? Andrews asked at one point. I don't know, said Sanderpay. Have you thought about it? I have, Granovitz put in. But it doesn't matter. They'll try either way. If it's them, they'll want to reach us, of course. If it's the fungus, it'll want to throw us off our guard. Assuming that it has absorbed enough knowledge from its hosts to handle a transmission, which isn't established. Still, it will probably try, so we can't trust a transmission. Yeah, said Delvecchio, but that's the problem. We can't trust anything. We have to suppose everything we're working on. We don't have any concrete information to speak of. I know, Jim. I know. On the sixth day, the storm screamed over the horizon. Spore clouds flowed by and the wind whipped into rents and gaps. Overhead, the sky darkened. Lightning sheeted in the west. The radio screeched its agony and crackled. Whistlers moved up and down the scale. Thunder rolled. In the tower, the men of Greywater Station waited out the last few hours. The voice had come in early that morning, had faded. Nothing intelligible had come through. Static had crackled most of the day. The soldiers were moving on the edge of the storm, Delvecchio calculated. Accident or planning? He wondered, and deployed his men. Andrews to the turret laser, Sanderpay at the rocket station, Sheridan and himself inside the station with laser rifles, Granovitz to the flyer port, where the remaining flyers had been stocked with crude bombs, Mitterts on the walls. They waited in their skin thins, filter masks locked on but not in place. The sky, darkened by the coming storm, was blackening towards twilight anyway. Soon night and the storm would reach Greywater Station hand in hand. Delvecchio stalked through the halls impatiently. Finally, he returned to the tower to see what was happening. Andrews at the laser console was watching the window. A can of beer sat next to him on the night scope. Delvecchio had never seen the quiet little mycologist drink before. They're out there, Andrew said. Somewhere. He sipped at his beer, put it down again. I, I wish that... Well, they'd hurry up or something. He looked at Delvecchio. We're all probably going to die, you know. The odds are so against us. Delvecchio didn't have the stomach to tell him he was wrong. He just nodded and watched the window. All the lights in the station were out. Everything was down but the generators, the turret controls and the force field. The field, fed with the extra power, was stronger than ever. But strong enough? Delvecchio didn't know. Near the field perimeter, seven or eight ghosting shapes wheeled against the storm. They were all wings and claw and a long, razor-barbed tail. Swamp bats. Big ones with six-foot wingspans. They weren't alone. The underbrush was alive with slinkers. And the big leeches could be seen in the water near the south wall. All sorts of life was being picked up by the sensors. Driven before the storm, or massing for attack. 
Del Vecchio didn't know that either. The tower door opened and Sheridan entered. He threw his laser rifle on the table near the door. These things are useless, he said. We can't use them unless they get inside. Or unless we go out to meet them, and I'm not going to do that. Besides, what good will they do against all the stuff they've got? Delvecchio started to answer, but Andrews spoke first. Look out there, he said softly. More swamp bats. And that other thing, what is it? Delvecchio looked. Something else was moving through the sky, on slowly moving leathery wings. It was black and big, twice the size of a swamp bat. The first expedition named them Helions, Delvecchio said after a long pause. They're native to the mountains, a thousand miles from here. Another pause. That clinches it. There was general movement on the ground and in the water to the west of Greywater Station. Echoes of thunder rolled, and then, piercing the thunder, came a shrill, whooping shriek. What was that? Sheridan asked. Andrews was white. That one I know, he said. It's called a screecher. A, a, a sonic rifle breaks down cell walls with concentrated sound. I saw them used once. I... Almost makes flesh liquefy. God, said Sheridan. Delvecchio moved to the intercom. Every box in the station was on, full volume. Battle stations, gentlemen, he said, flipping down his filter mask. And good luck. Delvecchio moved out into the hall and down the stairs. Sheridan picked up his laser and followed. At the base of the stairs, Delvecchio motioned for him to stop. You stay here, Eldon. I'll take the main entry port. Rain had begun to spatter the swamps around grey water, although the field kept it off the station. A great sheet of wind roared from the west, and suddenly the storm was no longer approaching. It was here. A blurred outline of the force bubble could be seen against the churning sky. Delvecchio strode across the yards, through the halls and cycled through Decon quickly to the main entry port. A large viewplate gave the illusion of a window. Delvecchio watched it, sitting on the hood of a mud tractor. The intercom box was on the wall next to him. Burrowing animals are moving against the underfield, Jim, Andrews reported from the turret. We're getting, oh, five or six shock inputs a minute. N nothing we can't handle, however. He fell silent again, and the only noise was the thunder. Sanderpay began to talk, gabbing about the rockets. Delvecchio was hardly listening. The perimeter beyond the walls was a morass of rain-whipped mud. Delvecchio could see little. He switched from the monitor he was tuned to and picked up the turret cameras. He and Andrews watched with the same eyes. Handerfield contacts are up, Andrews said suddenly. A couple of dozen a minute now. The swamp bats were wheeling closer to the perimeter, first one, then another, skirting the very edge of the field, riding terribly and silently on the wet winds. The turret laser rotated to follow each, but they were gone before it could fire. Then there was motion on the ground. A wave of slinkers began to cross the perimeter. The laser wheeled, depressed. A spurt of light appeared, 
leaving a quick vanishing royal of steam. One slinker died, then another. On the south, a leech rose from the grey waters near the base wall of the station. The turret turned. Two quick spurts of red burned. Steam rose once. The leech twisted at the second burst. Del Vecchio nodded silently, clutched his rifle tighter. And Andrew's voice came over the intercom. There's a, a man out there, he said. Near you, Jim. Delvecchio slipped on his infrared goggles and flicked back to the camera just outside the entry port. There was a dim shape in the undergrowth. Just one? asked Delvecchio. All I read, Andrew said. Delvecchio nodded and thought. Then, I'm going out. Many voices at once on the intercom. That's not wise, I don't think, said one. Granovitz. Another said, Watch it, Jim, be careful. Sandepe, maybe. And Sheridan, unmistakable. Don't! You'll let them in! Delvecchio ignored them all. He hit the switch to open the outer port doors and slid down into the driver's seat in the mud tractor. The doors parted. Rain washed into the chamber. The tractor moved forward, rattling over the entry ramp and sliding smoothly into the slime. Now he was out in the storm and the rain tingled through his skin thins. He drove with one hand and held the laser with the other. He stopped the tractor just outside the port and stood up. Come out! he screamed as loud as he could, out shouting the thunder. Let us see you! If you can understand me! If the fungus doesn't have you, come out now! He paused and hoped and waited a long minute. He was about to shout again when a man came running from the undergrowth. Delvecchio had a fleeting glimpse of tattered, torn clothes, bare feet stumbling in the mud, rain-drenched dark hair. But he wasn't looking at those. He was looking at the fungus that all but covered the man's face and trailed across his chest and back. The man, the thing, raised a fist and released a rock. It missed. He kept running and screaming. Delvecchio numb raised his rifle and fired. The fungus thing fell a few feet beyond the trees. Delvecchio left the tractor where it was and walked back to the entry port on foot. The doors were still open. He went to the intercom. It has them, he said. Then again. It has them. And it's hostile. So now we kill them. There were no answers. Just a long silence and a stifled sob, and then Andrew's slow, detached voice. A new reading. A body of men, thirty, forty maybe, moving from the west, in formation. A lot of metal, duraloy, I think. The main force, Delvecchio said. They won't be so easy to kill. Get ready. Remember, everything at once. He turned back into the rain cradled his rifle, walked to the ramp. Through his goggles, Del Vecchio saw the shapes of men. Only a few at first. Fanned out. He went outside the station, to the tractor, knelt behind it. As he watched, the turret turned. A red line reached out, touched the first dim shape. It staggered. New sheets of rain washed in, obliterating the landscape. 
The laser leaked out again. Delvecchio very slowly lifted his rifle to his shoulder and joined it, firing at the dim outlines seen through the goggles. Behind him, he felt the first sounding rocket leave up the launch tube, and he briefly saw the fire of its propellant as it cleared the dome. It disappeared into the rain. Another followed it, then another, then the firings became regular. The dim shapes were all running together. There was a large mass of men just a few yards deep in the undergrowth. Delvecchio fired into the mass and noted where they were, and hoped Arnold remembered. Arnold remembered. The turret laser depressed, sliced at the trunk of a nearby tree. There was the sound of wood tearing. Then the tree began to lean. Then it fell. From what Del Vecchio could see, it missed. Another idea that didn't quite work, he reflected bitterly. But he continued to fire into the forest. Suddenly, near the edge of the perimeter, water gouted up out of the swamp in a terrific explosion, dwarfing all else. A slinker flew through the air, surprised at itself. It rained leech parts. The first rocket. A second later, another explosion among the trees this time. Then more, one after another. Several very close to the enemy. Two among the enemy. Trees began to fall, and Del Vecchio thought he could hear screaming. He began to hope, and continued to fire. There was a whine in the sky above. Granovitz and the flyer. Del Vecchio took time to glance up briefly and watch it flit overhead towards the trees. Other shapes were moving up there too, however, diving on the flyer. But they were slower. Granovitz made a quick pass over the perimeter, dumping bombs. The swamp shook, and the mud and water from the explosions mixed with the rain. Now, definitely, he could hear screaming. And then the answer began to come. Red tongues and pencils of light flicked out of the dark, played against the walls, causing steam whirlpools which washed away in the rain. Then projectiles, explosions, a dull thud rocked the station, a second, and somewhere in the storm someone opened up with a screecher. The wall behind him rang with a humming blow, and there was another explosion, much bigger overhead, against the force field dome. The rain vanished for an instant in a vortex of exploding gases. Wind whipped the smoke away, and the station rocked. Then the rains touched the dome again in sheets. More explosions. Lasers spat and hissed in the rain, back and forth, a grisly light show. Mithertz was firing from the walls. Granovitz was making another pass. The rockets had stopped falling. Gone already? The turret fired. Moved, fired, moved, fired. Several explosions rocked the tower. The world was a madness of rain, of noise, of lightning, of night. Then the rockets began again. The swamp and nearer forest shook to the hits. The eastern corner of the station moved as a sounding missile landed uncomfortably close. The turret began to fire again. Short bursts, lost in rain. Answering fire was thick. At least one screecher was shrieking regularly. Del Vecchio saw the swamp bats appear suddenly around the flyer. They converged from all sides, howling, bent on death. One climbed right up into the engine, 
folding its wings neatly. There was a terrible explosion that lit the night to ghosts of trailing rain. More explosions around the force dome. Lasers screamed off the dome and turret. The turret glowed red, steamed. On the south, a section of wall vanished in a tremendous explosion. Delvecchio was still firing, regularly, automatically. But suddenly the laser went dead. Uncharged. He hesitated, rose. He turned just in time to see the helion dive on the turret. Nothing stopped it. With a sudden chill, Delvecchio realized that the force field was out. Laser rifles reached out and touched the helion, but not the turret laser. The turret was still silent. The helion hit the windows with a crash, smashing through, shattering glass and plastic and duralloy struts. Delvecchio began to move back towards the ramp and the entry port. A slinker rose as he darted by, snapped at his leg. There was a red blur of pain, fading quickly. He stumbled, rose again, moved. The leg was numb and bleeding. He used a useless laser as a crutch. Inside, he hit the switch to shut the outer doors. Nothing happened. He laughed suddenly. It didn't matter. Nothing mattered. The station was breached. The fields were down. The inner doors still worked. He moved through, limped through the halls, out to the yard. Around him he could hear the generators dying. The turret was hit again and again. It exploded and lifted, moaning. Three separate impacts hit the tower at once. The top half rained metal. Delvecchio stopped in the yard, looked at the tower, suddenly unsure of where he was going. The word Arnold formed on his lips, but stayed there. The generators quit completely. Lasers and missiles and swamp bats steamed overhead. All was night, lit by lightning, by explosions, by lasers. Delvecchio retreated to a wall and propped himself against it. The barrage continued. The ground inside the station was torn, churned, shook. Once there was a scream somewhere, as though someone was calling him in their moment of death. He lowered himself to the ground and lay still, clutching the rifle, while more shells pounded the station. Then all was silent. Propped up against a rubble pile, he watched helplessly as a big slinker moved towards him across the yard. It loomed large in the rain, but before it reached him it fell screaming. There was movement behind him. He turned. A figure in skin-thins waved, took up a position near one of the ruined laboratories. Delvecchio saw shapes moving on what was left of the walls, scrambling over. He wished he had a charge in his laser. A red pencil of light flashed by him in the rain. One of the shapes crumbled. The man behind him had fired too soon, though, and too obviously. The other figures levelled on him. Stabs of laser fire went searing over Delvecchio's head. Answering fire came briefly, then stopped. Slowly, slowly, Delvecchio dragged himself through the mud towards the labs. They didn't seem to see him. After an exhausting effort, he reached the fallen figure in skin-thins. Sandepay. Dead. Delvecchio took the laser, 
There were five men ahead of him, more in the darkness beyond. Lying on his stomach, Delvecchio fired at one man, then another, and another. Steam geezers rose around him as the shapes in Duraloy fired back. He fired and fired and fired until all those around him were down. Then he picked himself up and tried to run. The heel was shot off his boot and warmth flooded his foot. He turned and fired, moved on past the wrecked tower and the labs. Laser stabs peeled overhead. Four, five, maybe six of them. Delvecchio dropped behind what had been a lab wall. He fired around the wall, saw one shape fall. He fired again. Then the rifle died on him. Lasers tore into the wall, burning in, almost through. The men fanned. There was no hope. Then the night exploded into fire and noise. A body twisted flat spun by. A stab of laser came on the teeth of the explosion from behind Del Vecchio. Sheridan stood over him, firing into the men caught in the open, burning them down one by one. He quit firing for an instant, lobbed a vial of explosive, then went back to the laser. He was hit by a chunk of flying rubble, went down. Del Vecchio came back up as he did. They stood unsteadily, Sheridan wheeling and looking for targets. But there were no more targets. Sheridan was coughing from exertion inside his skin thins. The rain lessened. The pain increased. They picked their way through the rubble. They passed many twisted bodies in Duraloy, a few in skin thins. Sheridan paused at one of the armoured bodies, turned it over. The faceplate had been burned away with part of the face. He kicked it back over. Del Vecchio tried another. He lifted the helmet off, searched the nostrils, the forehead, the eyes, the ears. Nothing. Sheridan had moved away and was standing over a body in skin thins, half covered by rubble. He stood there for a long time. Del Vecchio, he called finally. Del Vecchio! Del Vecchio walked to him, bent, pulled off the filter mask. The man was still alive. He opened his eyes. Oh, God, Jim, he said. Why? Oh, why? Del Vecchio didn't say anything. He stood stock still and stared down. Bill Rain stared back up. I got through, Jim, said Rain, coughing blood. Once the fly was down, no trouble, close, I walked it. They, they were still inside mostly, with the heat. Only a few had gone out. Del Vecchio coughed once, quietly. I got through the vaccine, most anyway. A few had gone out. Infected. No hope. But... But we took away their armour and their weapons. No harm that way. We had to fight our way through. Me left alone. But... God, those guys in Duraloy lost some men. Leeches. Slinkers. Sheridan turned and dropped his rifle. 
he began to run towards the labs. We tried the suit radios, Jim, but the storm should have waited, but the vaccine, short term, wearing off, we tried not to, to hurt you, started killing us. He began to choke on his own blood. Delvecchio, helpless, looked down. Again, he said in a voice that was dead and broken. We underestimated it again. We... No. I... I... Rain did not die for another three or four hours. Delvecchio never found Sheridan again. He tried to restart the generators alone, but to no avail. Just before dawn, the skies cleared. The stars came through, bright and white against the night sky. The fungus had not yet released new spores. It was almost like a moonless night on earth. Del Vecchio sat atop a mound of rubble, a dead soldier's laser rifle in his hands, ten or eleven charges on his belt. He did not look often to where rain lay. He was trying to figure out how to get the radio working. There was a supply ship coming. The sky to the east began to lighten. A swamp bat, then another, began to circle the ruins of Greywater Station. And the spores began to fall. There you go, don't forget, copyright is George R. Martin and Howard Waldrops. A big thank you to them for letting us play this story on Starship So That just means so much. Thank you so much. And big thank you to Nick there, who's come up and just delivered that fantastic narration as well. Thank you so much, Nick. Like I say, if you pop over to YouTube, you'll get a little more in-depth. Just look at the story and my thoughts on there if you want to kind of, you know, just carry on and have a, another kind of little session about the men of Greywater Station. I'll put a link on to the site. So that is Starship Sova's number 389. I really hope this time you've enjoyed it. That would be fantastic. It's not often we get, like I say, a big, big writer like George R. Martin. And it, it means a lot, you know what I mean, to kind of get this kind of work out as well. Like I say, it's never been put out in kind of any format on online. And Starship Sova's the first to do that. So, um, you know, we're quite proud. And again, a big thank you to Jeremy assistant editor there for kind of you know getting this between the teeth and running with it as well and trying and, and making it possible big thank you jeremy so that is starship so far like i say it's 389 next week we have a fantastic story by peter watts yes the you know one of the coolest science fiction writers out there you know putting out some amazing stuff so come over back next week as well that would be fantastic until then i would just like to say good night from me survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.